our Radio Catskill. Live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, back to the drawing board yet again. The New York State Legislature has officially rejected a proposal from the Independent Redistricting Commission to enact new congressional maps. Lawmakers now need to draw and approve their own map. We'll have the latest from Albany. Love shouldn't hurt. Fearless Hudson Valley is hosting a teen youth summit designed for youth and adult ally participants to gain knowledge and skills necessary to ending intimate partner violence in our communities. We speak to Fearless Hudson Valley's executive director and science teacher and Radio Catskill volunteer Joe Johnson is back with some of the most fascinating science stories of the week, including Neanderthal glue, the Odysseus lunar lander, and solar flares, plus classical kit and Maggie Fitzpatrick. First, the news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has invited top congressional leaders to the White House today to see if they can make progress on a bill to avert a government shutdown. As NPR's Mara Eliason reports, they'll also be discussing another bill to send military aid to Ukraine. Parts of the government could start shutting down later this week, and the president is trying to convince House Republicans to pass a bill to keep the government open. But Speaker Mike Johnson, who has a razor-thin majority in the House, hasn't figured out how to pass a government funding bill that has support from a majority of his own Republicans. If he crosses the aisle and relies on Democratic votes to pass legislation, Johnson could face a challenge to his leadership. At today's meeting, President Biden will also be pressing Johnson to follow the lead of the Senate, which passed military aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan with a big bipartisan vote. On that bill, Johnson faces a similar problem. If the bill went to the House floor, it would probably get a big bipartisan majority, but not a majority of House Republicans. Mara Liason, NPR News, the White House. Today is Michigan's primary election day. President Biden and former President Donald Trump are expected to garner the most support in their party votes. Michigan Republicans will also award presidential delegates later this week when they hold a separate party convention. French President Emmanuel Macron surprised many today by suggesting that Western troops should not rule out sending their troops to Ukraine, if needed. NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has quickly poured water on that suggestion. NATO and allies are providing unprecedented military support to Ukraine. We have done that since 2014 and stepped up, of course, after the uh, uh, full-scale invasion. Uh, (coughs) uh, But there are no plans for... NATO uh, combat troops uh, uh, on the ground uh, in Ukraine. The governments of Poland and Germany also insist they aren't planning to send troops either. It's been two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. Stocks opened lower this morning as the Commerce Department reported a steep drop in orders for durable goods last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped about 121 points in early trading. Orders for long-lasting manufactured goods fell more than 6% last month as new orders for commercial airplanes nosedived. Durable goods orders have fallen in three of the last four months. A new report to the FAA says Boeing's safety culture still needs work. The report says safety training at the jet maker changes so frequently it leads to confusion and that Boeing workers who report problems can still face retirement. Retaliation. Macy's says it plans to close 50 department stores this year and 100 more in the two years that follow. The retailer, which lost money in the most recent quarter, also plans to open some new stores under the high end Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury brands. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now down 112 points. This is NPR. There are two very different weather patterns happening in the U.S. this morning. A powerful winter storm is pummeling the west. Parts of Oregon and California could get feet of heavy snow. It feels a lot different in the Midwest. It could hit 77 degrees today in Chicago, but that will change quickly. Chicago's high temperature forecast tomorrow is 28 degrees. A majority of Mercedes workers at an assembly plant in Alabama have signed union cards. That's according to the United Auto Workers Union. 
As Stephen Bissaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, it's a significant step in the union's long campaign to get a foothold in the South's foreign auto plants. What's changed now is the union has some big wins to show off. Last year, it held a strike against the big three automakers that led to higher wages and better benefits. The UAW now says a majority of workers at this Alabama Mercedes plant want a union to get higher wages and end the system where some workers are paid less for the same jobs. This is the second plant in the South to have a majority of employees sign union cards. A Volkswagen plant in Tennessee reached that milestone earlier this month. The union's goal is to get 70% of workers at both plants to sign cards. At that point, it would demand the company recognize the union or force a union election. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha in Birmingham. The fast food chain Wendy's could soon start pricing menu items according to a practice called surge pricing. It would use dynamic pricing models based on demand to set menu prices. These could change from minute to minute. Surge pricing is used to price sporting and concert tickets and for ride-hailing apps. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Democrats in the New York State Legislature on Monday rejected new congressional district maps drawn by a bipartisan redistricting commission and are opting to draw their own maps instead. Republicans who are in the minority in the legislature condemned the vote, saying it's all about Democrats trying to gain political advantage. If this all sounds familiar, it is. In 2022, the legislature redrew maps to their advantage, and then the state's top court struck down those maps as unconstitutional gerrymandering. The court proceeded to put in place a neutral replacement map that helped Republicans flip four seats. For the latest from Albany, from the New York Public News Network, here's Karen DeWitt. Democrats rejected the maps. I-17, nays 40. The bill is defeated. The maps were approved 9-1 to by the Bipartisan Independent Redistricting Commission back on February 15th. They left largely intact the maps drawn two years ago by a court-appointed special master. Those maps are believed to have contributed to four congressional seats in New York flipping from Democrat to Republican in 2022, resulting in the GOP's narrow hold on the U.S. House of Representatives. But Deputy Senate Majority Leader Mike Gian says that's not why the Democrats voted down the maps. There are a number of constitutional defects uh, in the lines. If you look at it, they clearly um, engaged in incumbent protection, which is prohibited by the Constitution. Uh, they, it was actually bipartisan incumbent protection, which is interesting, uh, which explains how they got out of there with bipartisan uh, support. There are numerous county cuts, which uh, are also uh, prohibited by the Constitution. There are communities of interest that are not uh, properly reflected in the lines. So there's plenty of, um, of, of defects. Minority party Republicans who backed the commission's maps objected. Senator George Borrello says the Democrats' decision to draw their own maps undermines the will of the voters. They passed a constitutional amendment in 2014 that set up the bipartisan commission to draw new lines. Because the reality is we don't really care what the people think. We care what the political outcome is at the end. And that's what this is about. It's taking it away from the people, taking away the choices that they made. The 2022 special master's maps were the result of a court battle where the state's highest court rejected lines drawn by the legislature's Democratic majority, saying they were gerrymandered to benefit the Democrats. Now, in 2024, that court has new leadership. Court of Appeals Chief Judge Rowan Wilson wrote the dissenting opinion when the court threw out the lines drawn by the Democrats. Next, the Democrats will once again draw their own congressional district maps. Senator Gianni Harris denies that the new maps, which are still being worked out, will benefit Democrats more than the commission's maps. He says that's illegal under the state's constitution. At the end of the day, if we come up with a map that respects communities of interest, um, deals with keeping uh, uh, political boundaries uh, intact, um, and uh, deals with some of the issues that we think are flawed in the map that was presented to us, hopefully the courts will agree. They will have to act quickly. Petitioning for federal, state, and local primary elections begins Tuesday.
Gianera says instead of postponing the start of petitioning, the legislature will likely move to require fewer total signatures to qualify for the ballot. He says he hopes the new lines can be in place by the end of the week. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. And according to the New York Times, if the emerging plan holds, the most significant changes to the congressional maps would come on Long Island, in the Hudson Valley, and around Syracuse. Democrats' proposed changes could endanger a pair of Republican incumbents, including Brandon Williams and Mark Molinaro of New York's 19th District, which is in our listening area, and help secure a Democratic one, Representative-elect Tom Suozzi on the North Shore of Long Island who recently won a special election to fill the vacant seat left by George Santos. We'll stay on this story and keep you posted. In the meantime, Fearless Hudson Valley is the only private nonprofit agency in Orange and Sullivan counties in New York dedicated to assisting survivors of domestic violence, teen dating violence, and human trafficking by providing free and confidential services. On Thursday, Fearless Hudson Valley is hosting a teen youth summit. It's called Love Shouldn't Hurt. And it's for Orange and Sullivan County's 9th through 12th grade students and teachers. Here to tell us more is Kellyanne Costiel-Larrier, Executive Director of Fearless Hudson Valley. Kellyanne, welcome back. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me back. Thanks for being here. And let's talk a little bit about Love Shouldn't Hurt and what this uh, uh, summit is for teens is all about and, and why it's so important to have this summit for teens. Yes, well, we're very excited. Um, it's finally back in person after several years of us all um, learning how to live uh, with COVID. Um, and it started a couple of years uh, prior to COVID where we uh, partnered with, um, originally we partnered with a local venue um, to host a youth summit, bringing together students from across the county as well as their adult teacher, leader, counselor, coach, um, for a day of education, awareness, and training uh, for youth, because we know not only are they uh, youth our fastest growing victim population, what we also know is that youth are really hungry to look for tools and resources to support each other uh, and one another in addressing what are healthy and unhealthy relationships. Let's talk a little bit about what teen violence, teen dating violence really does encompass. A, a one in three adolescents in the United States will experience abuse from a dating partner before they turn 18. But that dating violence can take place not only in person, but also online or, or through technology. Can you can you walk us through some of the different types of behavior that constitute you know what teens are facing? Sure. I mean, many of us can easily identify um, behaviors that someone uses that encapsulate physical violence. And we still continue regardless of whether you're an adult or um, a youth experiencing uh, partner violence, are doing a lot to raise awareness around coercive behaviors um, where someone is controlling uh, not only your ability to move freely in the world, but your autonomy and agency throughout your your, uh, day-to-day life. Uh, we're looking for emotional and psychological abuse, name-calling, othering, isolating. Um, but we're really also talking a lot, and this is both for adult and youth, the changes for all the the good things that technology has brought to our life. It has also given those that are using these behaviors an additional tool, not only to harass, annoy, and stalk their partners, but to maintain that that coercive control uh, from a distance. And so what's interesting is that we, when we put out our Youth Summit every year, we give a wide range of topics to have youth rate where their area of interest is um, so that we can cater towards, you know, some of the things they want to learn about annually. And uh, one of the top requested workshops beyond our um our introductory workshop is relationships in a digital world. And so I think that that continues to speak volumes, that what we're also seeing is uh, the use of technology and the role it's playing in one's day-to-day life, but also the impact it's having when when someone is experiencing um, violence and control in a relationship. 
Well, it's especially, um, you know, acute, I think, when you talk about physical, psychological aggression, not physical, you know, you're, you're, uh, it's verbal communication uh, that's online or on an app. Uh, there could be stalking. There could be this, you know, repeated behaviors like teasing and name calling, as you mentioned. But also, it, you know, this type of violence, this type of behavior tends to affect girls and young women um, at a higher proportional rate. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and, and what are some of the things that you're trying to teach girls and young women in this summit? Yeah, so we, we know that, that that relationship violence can happen to anyone. There's there's not, you know, uh, a one-size-fits-all for someone who's using the behaviors and also for someone who can be a victim. Anybody can be a victim. And we also know that crimes that are connected to domestic and sexual violence um, disproportionately impact women and girls, and they are rooted in larger systemic forms of oppression. And so we we have to have a lot of conversations around the messages that we're all getting uh, in day-to-day society. From the moment we're born into this world, um, we are born into very specific gender boxes, and we get very concrete messages as boys and girls on you know, what those things look like. And those things impact our framework on how we navigate the world. Um, But they also reinforce so many of the myths and stereotypes uh, that create an environment that that really, um, besides those that, you know, most people are not perpetrating these behaviors. And yet we live in a society that creates space and at times condones and looks the other way. And really beyond you know, supporting victims and survivors, we spend a lot of time talking to youth um, around what it looks like to be a bystander and how you can move from bystander to upstander. How do we engage in conversations when we notice our peers and our friend groups, uh, you know, um, exploiting um, the young girls in, in, the, in our lives or victim blaming or using offensive, abusive or derogatory language um, whether that be sexist language, racist language, homophobic language, but like, what are the things that we can do that don't always mean physically intervening, but there are lots of other ways that we can be an upstander and play an active role in disrupting these behaviors. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Kellyanne Costulary, or she's the executive director of Fearless Hudson Valley. It is the only private not-for-profit agency in Orange and Sullivan counties dedicated to assisting survivors of domestic violence, teen dating violence, and human trafficking. They have a Teen Youth Summit on Thursday for Orange and Sullivan County's 9th through 12th grade students and teachers. I just want to talk a little bit more about that last point you made about how it uh, impacts different uh, folks, uh, different students who um, may identify differently. Uh, Certainly in um, the news headlines now, an Oklahoma teenager who died after a fight in the high school bathroom and uh, which you know, she, that student identified as non-binary and, and said uh, they were a target of bullying uh, and then died. Um, certainly, you know, this is an extreme. We don't know all of the details, but these youth groups, teen groups, I mean, they're at greater risk than some of the others. Certainly. Uh, you know, when we look at, you know, um, risk and vulnerability, and we also look at, um, the idea that, again, the messages that we get, we don't often realize how subtle they are. Um, you know, I was, it was interesting because I always say that it's there even if we don't see it. And I, I just this weekend was um, my, my youngest, uh, his favorite movie right now is, as we know, when we have uh, elementary kids, they like to binge certain movies over and over again. Uh, and right now he's into Sandlot. And so I was sitting there watching it with him and you know, there's this interaction between the kids on the softball field, the baseball field, where they're calling each other names. And then the end with you throw like a girl. And this seems to be the, you know, the the line in the sand that the worst thing we teach young boys is that they are or can be girls or have feminine qualities or characteristics. And these messages permeate our media, our our music, our our groups, our sporting events. And so I say, like, when we look at at risk, um, there is certainly a, a, a disproportionate risk to the LGBTQ community, understanding that uh, gender nonconforming, queer, trans youth absolutely um, are experiencing um, harassment and at a higher risk 
um, of uh, certain behaviors. Um, and again, um, when we look at sexism, racism, and homophobia, we can't ignore that many of these subtle messages that we maybe not would identify when we watch a movie that we're, that we're watching for, for what we deem entertainment on what those teach young children and how they're reinforced to create environments where people are navigating a world that they're experiencing abuse, harassment, bullying, and in some cases, um, you know, death. Um, and so we, we have so much work to do. Um, and, you know, the second uh, top request in this, this youth summit was media literacy. So how do we identify when the messages that we're getting, both overt and subtle, are really reinforcing all of these behaviors that we're trying to disrupt? And so do you use those uh, stereotypes that we're talking about and some of the things that are just uh, out there in media to challenge the participants in these summits to create change when they go back to their schools and communities? Yes. I th- you know, I think what's really important is that, that we collectively as a society have to listen to our youth. They have a lot to say, and they are the boots on the ground, and, and they're experiencing, um, you know, uh, they're dating. They are getting bombarded by messages around what relationships look like, whether that's through video, game, video games, movie, media, social media, TikTok. And so we can either engage our youth in, in conversations around what healthy relationships look like, or we can not support these environments and ensure that they are seeped within our schools and our curriculum. And then the messages they will get are in all of the wrong places, and they will be used to inform how they navigate the world. But I would say that the moment we start talking about these things and we've gone into classrooms and we've gone into schools, the youth want to talk about these things because these are the things that they're experiencing. This is impacting them day to day. I mean, uh, you know, minute to minute as they scroll through uh, Instagram or social media, I'm sure. Um, For the Youth Summit on Thursday, um, how can folks get involved? Can folks still get involved? Well, they, um, as of now, um, the registration has closed because it requires a lot of coordination with busing throughout Orange and Sullivan County. We have about 150 students, youth coming throughout Orange and Sullivan County. But I will say this, um, now that we are back in person, it will be annually. Um, and it's always, uh, roughly around this time. We partner with our local colleges to, to conduct the training and, and they, uh, on their spring breaks. But for anybody who's interested in engaging um, or having one of their youth engage in our program, I would like to also mention that we have our uh, youth, um, our SILA program, our Student Youth Leadership Academy in the summer. Um, our uh, applications are already available on our website and social media pages. But if you have a student um, between ninth and 12th grade that is looking to spend uh, a week with us, in addition to 40 hours of community service and volunteer work that they will get a letter for to, you know, support their college applications, they will spend a week immersing themselves in so many of the topics we just discussed, but also part of the project is how do we become ambassadors in our own schools, in our own communities, and they leave with a project that they come up with that they're going to continue on throughout the next school year. Um, and so those happen, um, it's a full week, and there are two full sessions this summer, and the applications are available online now at fearlesshv.org. Um, and I would encourage you to follow us on our social media because we are always doing many events. We're um, announcing the winner of our youth uh, art contest uh, this week as well. And so there's lots of things that we're doing to engage youth because, again, the next generation is going to help us inform ways that we can talk about these things that reach youth, but also to listen to what they're being impacted by. Um, because, again, for, for many of us, we did not have this bombardment of technology um, in the same way that our youth are, and it's having significant impact on our emotion, on our youth's emotional wellness, safety, and it's and we're seeing huge upgrades not only in relationship violence but also on bullying, um, and there's just so much work to be done. Yeah, we're talking to Kellyanne Costiel Larrier. She's the executive director of Fearless Hudson Valley. Um, if you think you or someone you know may be a victim of abuse, there is a hotline uh, at Fearless Hudson Valley, 
845-562-5340. Also information uh, about how to uh, get involved, learn more at fearlesshv.org. Kellyanne, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Okay, we'll take a break. And when we come back, some science stories making headlines with science teacher and Radio Catskill volunteer Joe Johnson. We'll be right back after this break. This is Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, the show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me every Thursday night at 10 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every week we bring you some fascinating science stories with former Port Jervis science teacher and Radio Catskill volunteer Joe Johnson. This morning we're going to be talking about Neanderthal glue, the Odysseus lunar lander that flipped over, and massive solar flares that may or may not have caused some cellular outages last week. Intuitive Machines is a private company that landed something on the moon for the first time in a while. They did. They landed the Odysseus probe, which has been nicknamed Odie, of course. And as you said, it was built by Intuitive Machines from Houston. Um, NASA has a new program called the uh, Commercial Lunar Payload Services, where they're actually farming out um, the design and construction of of, uh, spacecraft to private aerospace firms. They found that it's cheaper and um, more efficient to do it that way. Now, it kind of had a wonky lunar landing. It did. It did. Tipped over. <laughs> so let's let's kind of back to, uh, up to the beginning. It launched on the February 15th and uh, took about six days to reach the moon. Everything was going great. Uh, achieved orbit. Its orbit was a little off. They had to uh, change the orbit a little bit. And it has six experiments on board. NASA has uh, paid $118 million to put six experiments on board. Everything from navigation stuff to um, stereo cameras to study the exhaust plume and its effect on the lunar surface while it's landing, and that's a, a big part of this. NASA is uh, worried about something called lunar sandblasting. Now, what's that? Now, well, back in 1969, Apollo 12, um, the lunar module, landed about 200 meters away from the Surveyor 3 probe, which had been there on the surface for about two and a half years. They wanted to study the effects of long-term lunar environment exposure on spacecraft, So they had planned to bring back parts of Surveyor. And what they found was that the exhaust plume of the Apollo 12 um, lunar module had actually blasted the metal. And um, the whole thing was discolored except where it got blasted by the Apollo 12 exhaust plume Hmm. because it's just blowing out, you know, sand and and the regolith on the surface. And uh, and they're they're worried about that. So they're studying it. That's one of the things that they're they're looking at on this. Anyway, so, yeah, the landing was a little bit of a problem. Everything was fine. They had had to reprogram part of the computer because their uh, laser rangefinder malfunctioned. And they had to go to a backup system, a LIDAR system, which is basically radar with lasers instead. And as it landed, and and you got to remember that this landing is autonomous. In other words, the spacecraft is controlling itself. All right, nobody's with a joystick back in NASA landing this thing. (laughs) It took about 10 minutes to descend to the surface, and uh, as it was landing, it was going about two miles per hour laterally. They think one of the legs caught on a rock or perhaps dug into the surface, and yes, unfortunately, it's at rest on its side. Now, all is not lost. It's already sent back some images. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, technically, this thing has been a success. When you think about it, it did make a a soft landing on the moon. It survived. Its power systems are functioning. I, it was sending images back, and, uh, you know, all's good in that department. The computer is working. The thermal control system is working. The payloads, which NASA put on board, um, they're all working, too. 
Okay, they're all functioning. Communications is working. So, you know, technically this thing was a success. However, the, the bad side to it is, yes, the science is going to be limited. We're not going to be able to get a lot of the images that we want to see. Um, we're just not going to be able to collect some of the data. There was a small rover on board that cannot be deployed because it actually ended up on the on the downside, the, the side that's towards the surface. And because it's on the dark side, it's turning towards the dark side of the moon. Lunar day is ending for it. Its lifespan is limited. Because it's solar powered. Solar powered that powers batteries. and um, But they think that they're going to get another day or two out of it. Still quite an accomplishment. The first private spacecraft to reach the lunar surface. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, good, uh, I guess, uh, proof of concept for the NASA Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was an earlier um, probe, the Peregrine probe, if you remember, uh, several months ago, that uh, – ended up having a fuel leak in orbit, and it was not able to land, and it ended up burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. So while we're in space, let's move from the moon to the sun. There were some pretty powerful solar flares that occurred last week. Yeah, last Wednesday and Thursday, the 21st and 22nd, there were a couple of coincidental events. There were three solar flares, the third of which was an X-class solar flare, which is, that's a big one. And at the same time, there were multiple cell phone network disruptions, lots of apps, lots of gaming networks went down. They, They generally came back up fairly quickly. But um, it's kind of coincidental that the two things happen at the same time. Now, a solar flare is, well, you got to understand that the sun is not solid and it's twisting. The, the equator rotates faster because the sun does rotate on its axis just like the Earth does um, about every 27 days. So this, the middle of it is rotating faster near the equator, near the solar equator. And so it's actually twisting the sun and it's twisting the sun's magnetic field. And these magnetic lines of, of force get all twisted up, and occasionally they have an effect on the surface of the sun. They just release this huge burst of energy just across the infrareds or across the electromagnetic spectrum. Everything from radio waves to gamma rays, microwaves, uh, ultraviolet, visible. It's called a flare because it's visibly very bright when you see it happen through a telescope. Um, these flares cause the northern lights. And they can have a big effect on uh, communications uh, networks. Uh, They can also have a big effect on satellites, too. Well, this was the day, as we've said, that AT&T experienced this big outage. And at first there was some speculation that these solar flares may have caused that. And solar flares can affect communication systems. Absolutely. But NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, says that it's highly unlikely that these solar flares caused this cellular outage. Absolutely. They said the magnitude is just too small. In other words, it wasn't strong enough. Also, these things were not pointed quite straight at the Earth. So, um, you know, there's there, NOAA definitely is saying that, and I have a lot of faith in NOAA. Also, a lot of the networks have claimed technical non-flare-related causes. Now, on the other What's side, the technical non-flare related cause. Um, one um, network said they were doing a, a, a software update and something didn't install right. There's there's a whole lot of of uh, different causes that they're coming up with. However, several sources have argued that the timing seems to be more than coincidental that the two things happened at roughly the same time. And also, some networks went down and some works networks did not. They're very selective, and this is kind of like solar flares in the past. So I think that this is uh, going to be a little controversy for a while. I know that there's a lot of people talking about it online. We haven't ruled out a hacker on the sun. <laughs> I, I, uh, okay. Let's move on. All right. Well, you know, the thing is, though, if we can go back to that for a second, it could have been a lot worse. A lot of times flares are accompanied with something called a coronal mass ejection, which is a lot worse. This is where part of the sun is actually blown off into space. And just literally billions of tons of superheated plasma flying through space. And if that hits the Earth, we've got some communications problems, definitely. Also, you've got to remember that solar max is coming up. The sun is on about an 11-year cycle, okay, of maximum to minimum uh, activity in terms of flares and sunspots and stuff like that. And we are coming up on solar max sometime during 2024. All right. So we may hear more about this. Another story that caught our eye about Neanderthal glue. (laughs) Let's let's talk about this. It's a kind of an an amazing discovery here that this could lead to some complex thinking from our ancestors. Well, this was an article in the journal Science Advances, New York University, the University of Tübingen, and Berlin National Museum. 
uh, were involved with this. Now, what happened was a bunch of scientists decided to re-examine some old artifacts that had been found in Le Moustier, which is an archaeological site in France, well known for uh, lots of Neanderthal artifacts and Neanderthal objects that they found. So they looked at these tools and they noticed that there was something on part of them, like a, a discoloration. So they took a sample of it. And what they found is that it was a combination of two things. It was bitumen, sometimes called bitumen, which is a naturally tarry substance from crude oil. It's really, really sticky stuff. Uh, and ochre, which is a reddish-brown clay chalky material. And what they found is that they had found it on a number of these tools. And by the way, these tools are from 40,000 to 120,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Neanderthals went extinct somewhere around 40,000 years ago. Now, being good scientists, they duplicated this material and they found that it was very, very sticky to rock tools, but not to hands. So you could actually hold a tool with it. You could, you could uh, jam a flake of a flint into it. And now instead of holding on to that very sharp flake with your hands, you've got this nice stable tool handle to hold on to it with. This shows uh, that they may have been like early engineers. Absolutely. It indicates a couple of things. Number one, very complex thinking because to create this stuff, takes several steps. It's not like, you know, here it is, let's just use it. Um, it also indicates that there was some cultural development going on because this is a skill, this is a material that has to be passed on. And last but not least, these materials are not common in the area where these tools were found. You would have to travel or, you know, quite a distance to find them or trade for them, which tells me that this, you know, was an investment of time. This was some high value stuff for them. They've also been credited with developing uh, other types of things that, that uh, kind of betray the stereotype of a you know, knuckle-dragging brute. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Neanderthals were far more complex than we, we originally thought. Believed to have made string, engraved bones in cave walls, and assembled jewelry from eagle talents. Absolutely. And they buried their dead, and many times with grave goods with them, so that they, we know that they were were memorializing the person being you know being uh, buried and back to space a total <laughs> solar eclipse it's when the moon passes between sun and earth yes completely coming up. blocking the face of the sun that's coming up april 8th people have been talking about it people have been preparing for it and actually some airplane passengers will have the chance to experience the eclipse in the sky i read that i read that 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 would be a, a pretty expensive flight i'll bet uh, well delta airlines has already announced that their special flight number 1218 is scheduled to arrive from austin <laughs> to detroit would be what they say is a uh, directly within the path of totality mm -hmm. and they're also saying that it sold out in 24 hours wow that's great that's <laughs> great i know there's cruises every time there's an eclipse that passes over the ocean and you can you can go on a book a cruise that will specifically um, be under that zone of totality i i plan on being in Pulaski, new york which is right in the zone of totality i was lucky enough to see the eclipse in 2017 uh, down in tennessee i was in the zone of totality and it is a otherworldly phenomenon it is very strange well, and one of the best ways to watch the eclipse is from the ground with a cloud-free sky. So if you didn't book that flight, don't <laughs> worry. And uh, we'll have more about the eclipse when we talk more science with Joe Johnson. We will. And um, actually, Delta added a second eclipse path of totality flight just yesterday. Uh, we'll have more with Joe Johnson and science stories next week. But after a break... It's more with Moving Toward Health columnist Maggie Fitzpatrick from the Sullivan County Democrat. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. How the great physicist Richard Feynman recovered after helping to build the atomic bomb. He thinks there's no point in building anything. Everything is going to blow up. And how he started a new life out west. But Caltech, he was a hero right up to the end. Part two of the curious, brilliant, vanishing Mr. Feynman. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This afternoon at one o'clock on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every Tuesday, we hear from Maggie Fitzpatrick. She is the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. Her column is out now on newsstands and at scdemocratonline.com. Good morning. Good morning. And today, we're talking about accepting failure faster. What do you mean by, fa by that? Yeah. <laughs> failure is not something anyone really wants to talk about oh, or accept no. usually, right? But it's good, right? We have to like... In order to succeed, we have to fail sometimes. So what what prompted this this column for you? 
Yeah, I was I was just going back through some old ones, truthfully, and this was um, a a theme that came up in an article I wrote, you know, way back when I started, and I wanted to elaborate on it. Um, but failure is something that we often try to avoid. But when it happens, sometimes it can take over a lot of time, right? So um, we have a setback, you know, whether it's health related or not, right? But um, nutrition is a great example of this, right? We, we eat something that's not in alignment with our goals or we miss a workout, right? And then all of a sudden that turns into eating 10 days worth of meals that are not in alignment with our goals or we miss two <laughs> weeks of workouts, right? And it, it ends up taking a lot of time. And what we want to try to do is shorten the amount of time that we spend in that dwelling on failure, right? If we can shorten the amount of time we spend in that, then we will be able to just keep moving forward more quickly. And you've got a great tip for that um, to get closer to your goals uh, and not thinking you've messed everything up by like blowing your day in one part of the day, but by dividing your day into quarters. Yeah, I really like this example um, because it's easy to conceptualize, right? It's easy to see. I also love sports. And so <laughs> this, I feel like it, you know, combines with that well. But if you think of a game, right, there's a basketball game, there's four quarters in a basketball game, right? Maybe you don't win the first quarter. Does that mean you've lost the entire game? No, we still have an opportunity to win the next quarter and potentially win the entire game if we're able to put up enough points in the rest of the quarters, right? Yeah. And our life is exactly the same way. Just because you have, you know, something happen in the morning that is not ideal, right? It throws you off track. That doesn't mean we have to throw out the entire rest of the day because something unfortunate happened. We had a failure of some sort, right? So we have that opportunity to, you know, take that amount of time we would usually spend on this failure, accept it, and then move on more quickly. It doesn't have to reset, you know, with the calendar of the next day. We can yeah. we can have it reset anytime. Yeah, I, that's a great way of thinking about it because you're, you're definitely shortening that time. And then you are potentially um, taking risks and trying new things to turn that around for that win. Yeah, exactly. You have to, right? Like, it's, it's easy to... Stay, stay stuck in the failure because we're already there. So we're already comfortable with it, right? It's really hard to say I did something that is not um, getting me to where I want to go and I'm going to move on. That's really, really hard, but it makes your life easier once we actually accept it and, you know, decide to move forward. I, yeah, this is a great uh, way to think about it because, you know, typically uh, if you do have uh, a bad morning, you might you know, come in later to work or just throughout the day saying, I'm having a bad day. Like, mm -hmm. and just accept that and never try to change it or accept a way to change it. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, this morning was like that for me. I just came in here and, you know, <laughs> you were sat, telling me about that. Yeah. I sat on the stool and I was like, okay, we must like recenter here because I don't know. All of a sudden it was just, I was frantic. I was in a bad mood. I like snapped at my dogs. I yelled at them and I was like, what is happening? You know, why am I being like this? And I was like, okay, well, I have to go. I'm going to go be on the radio. I have all these other things to do today. I don't want my entire day to feel like my morning did. I don't I don't want that to happen. So I have to consciously choose to change the way that I'm going to be to match the way I want to feel, not the way I currently feel. Well, and and listeners should know that, you know, before we went on air with Maggie, she was sitting over here in the corner and taking a moment for herself and I like was. just recentering, like really took that second to like, all right, I'm going to do this now. Yeah. And not just like I'm getting prepared to go on the radio, but like, no, I need a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, you know. It's it's okay to do that. And sometimes we have to remember that if we slow down for a second, take that moment to intentionally change the way that we are going to show up, the way that we're going to be, the actions we're going to take, then that will exponentially change the rest of our day for the better, right? It's like this slow down to speed up concept. If I just kept moving a million miles an hour in the not so positive mood that I was in, then that would continue to carry over, right? Yeah. And so I want to intentionally say, nope, that is the end of the quarter for me, right? Like that is the first quarter of the day. I'm calling it right now yeah. and I'm going to move on to the next one. And then you can look forward to the halftime show, exactly. which I call lunch. Lunch. Yep. <laughs> All right. I also like what you say here before we go. Uh, the last thing in your, your column too, like uh, taking care of yourself is like putting a deposit in your bank account. Yeah, it is. The more deposits we can put in, the more we have to pull from, right? 
Um, but we also have to remember that, unfortunately, the deposits are usually smaller than the withdrawals. <laughs> so we got to put a lot more of them in there. <laughs> Maggie Fitzpatrick issues the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. She joins us every Tuesday. That's when her column is in the paper, which is out on newsstands now, or you can access it online at scdemocratonline.com. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good halftime. Thank you, too. (laughs) We'll take a break. And uh, when we come back, Classical Kit is here to tell us about an upcoming event, the uh, Duo Solitude of Violin and Viola Classical Duet. This is Radio Chatskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow Wisp Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org and from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFradio.org. The mixtape's all about eclectic music, compiled with love, like an old-school mixtape. I'm Jason Tuga, and every Friday night, it's my aim to bring you something special, a unique mix of music you wouldn't hear anywhere else. You can count on hearing a diverse range of artists, eras, genres, and vibes. The mixtape, an hour of music assembled by me just for you, Friday night. Friday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Our own classical kit is here to tell us about an upcoming concert. It's a duo solitude violin and viola classical duet presented by the Music Institute of Sullivan and Ulster Counties. Good morning, Kit. Good morning. And I believe we have Anastasia Solberg on the line. We do. Good morning, who is Anastasia. Going to be the viola Good morning, player. everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Good morning. Yeah, Anastasia, um, you know, the, the title of this is a Schubert exhibition, and um, you mentioned to me, you, you used an interesting phrase. You said, embraced by Schubert, woven between classical and contemporary literature for violin and viola. And could you elaborate on that, of uh, what you have in mind for this program? Sure. Um, the Schubert leader that many people are familiar with, um, were transposed, or were transposed, they were rearranged for violin and viola, 50 of them were rearranged for violin and viola by a C.J. Wolf, from whom I can find nothing about. She lived in the late 1800s, or this was done in the late 1800s, and there, some of them are very, very beautiful. They're not quite the same as having them sung, they are different, but he stays very true to what is written from Schubert. She's just, you know, rearranged it for the strings. And so what we thought we would do, because, you know, leader aren't very long, we would do some Schubert, and then we would play a piece, and then we would do some Schubert, and then we would play a piece, and then we do some Schubert, plays a piece. So basically the whole program is based on the Schubert leader, and we put music, uh, other kinds of music, in between. So it has an overriding theme. That sounds lovely. And um, you mentioned that there was going to be a Rolla Divertimento, and I wasn't sure if it was Antonio or Alessandro, father or son, because they both were viola. Right, it's Alessandro. Okay. And Alessandro Rolla was also Paganini's teacher. And, um, And was he also one of the first people to... Um, you know, compose some of the repertoire for that instrument? Actually, no. There are many, many classical era um, and some Baroque era duos for violin and viola or viola and viola. Okay. Uh, they're just unknown. Oh. And um, we have we have pulled out, we've played, there's multiple from Pichel, if you've ever heard of him, and from Hofmeister, and it just goes on. The list is, is um, and some are really, really nice, and some are, you know, we don't need to hear them. <laughs> so, but there are, there are many there, and uh, so he's not the first, but he was the first to, um, or he basically pushed the viola to the limits. He decided that the viola shouldn't always be, you know, actually in the the classical literature, in the classical literature that we've read, the viola isn't a background instrument. It is fairly equal. But what Rolla does is he 
makes it a little bit more flamboyant, gives it more technical, difficult passages, and um, just makes it more fun. In fact, uh, many of the derivatives that we have read so far and have learned, um, the viola is often the lead instrument, and the violin is more in the background and gets to get the solo once in a while, which is fun. He even wrote pieces for viola solo with violin accompaniment, which uh, we haven't tried that yet, but we'll, you know, someday down the line. Okay. Yes. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a wonderful program um, there at the Ethelbert B. Crawford Public Library in Monticello. Um, but you also have some other things going on at MISU this month. Um, we I, do. We have, we have now developed a community events program calendar. So we have Drum Circle every third Thursday at 6 p.m. And we have Song Club every last Saturday of the month with Debbie Land. And Debbie Land is also leading the B2s in a coffeehouse performance um, this Saturday at 7.30 at Mizu. And that is that is going to be a wonderful concert. That's a nine-piece women's group. It is also Women's Month, so it's very appropriate. And they do an array of popular songs and that Debbie has arranged, and they are very, very, very good. Uh, just wonderful to listen to. This is the third time I'm having them. They are just absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, there's so, that's, so much. That's right, and and all of that is going on right there in Ellenville, but I, I like the fact that you're branching out beyond that territory to perform in Monticello. And yes. um, is this something that you try to do uh, periodically? Uh, well, no, not really. Uh, this was uh, the uh, library actually approached us. Okay. Um, and the library, um, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he wrote me an email and approached us about performing, and we took and ran with it. And so we think this will be a great program. It'll be a program that everyone can listen to because there's only one, you know, the, the March and is the, you know, the big bulk room. Oak piece, and that's a 15-minute piece with a lot of energy in it. So even if you're not used to listening to something that's a little bit more contemporary, it has so much energy that um, it'll it'll bring you along. But the Schubert are such such nice melodic, beautiful pieces to listen to. It's just going to be a pleasure to hear them. So anybody can come. Everybody will enjoy it. It's only an hour, and you know it'll be. I think it'll be a great program. And Anastasia, Anastasia, this is Tim Bruno. And David Fiedler, yes. who's part the other part of Duo Solitude, is from Monticello. Well, he were, he lived in Monticello for quite some time. Yes, he did. And Duo Solitude was formed when between you two? Um, we started working together many years ago, but uh, we basically formed a trio solitude during COVID with Anik uh, and with cello. And we did Facebook Live and we did, you know, this type of and concerts on Zoom to come out through COVID. And then Anik went back to, the, back to the city to work. And so the trio basically is only a once in a while thing for fun. But David and I continued to work together and decided to make this a serious adventure. And this is now our, you know, our our other job, I guess is what you could call it. It's not really a job, but, you know, um, but it's part, a major part of our lives. And you've also gone on to win multiple competitions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, we did the same thing. It was during COVID. We started, we looked online. There were many online competitions, which makes things a little bit easier. And um, we have won multiple competitions, the uh, last being uh, one that had that involved also playing in Carnegie Hall. So that was in November. We were able to play our winning piece there. It's just a short debut and everybody gets to play, but it was, you know, it was a great experience to be able to play in Carnegie Hall, in the Vile Recital Hall. And um, and we're going to continue with those competitions. We're going to try to raise the bar a little bit and go for other ones. So that's that's where we're at right now. It's It's a nice way to move forward and learn more repertoire and push ourselves. So that's the performer side of you and David, but you both also obviously are teaching at Misu. And uh, I'm wondering um, how that works in terms of the faculty and um, 
do you do you do all the students on your instrument? Does David do everyone who's studying violin, or are there other faculty members that are sharing that load? Oh, we have other faculty members. I have a piano teacher. Uh, I have a guitar teacher. I have a children's violin teacher. Um, David at the moment is pretty bogged down with students, so. Um, he's sort of stepped back a little bit from the Ellenville campus, and but he is an uh, active part of the community orchestra, was mentoring there, and um, so there's still a very strong connection here. And yes, so we we share the load. So it, uh, how long has has uh, David been a part of Misu? That's a very good question. I'm going to say maybe six, seven years. Okay. I, I couldn't. I couldn't really say. Right. Right. I, I don't know. It was well before COVID. Uh, we met a long time ago. Um, I could ask him just a second. David, when did we? How long ago did we start our liaison? Start working together. Uh, In general. 2016. Now, there you have it. Okay. Nobody has the dates, not okay. me. Okay. That's handy that he's right there. Um, yes, he's our, yeah, we're in the middle of a rehearsal, just by right. the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. well, um, I will let you get on to your rehearsal, but uh, let me just go through again. Um, this concert is going to be March 4th at 6.30 p.m. at the Ethelbert B. Crawford Public Library in Monticello, that's right on Broadway, and um, it's really a great thing to look forward to. And you can get more information about all the things that Misu does at misucatskills.org. Um, you can also call them at 845-377-3727. And thank you so much for joining us again, and we look forward to continuing to keep in touch and let our listeners know about what's going on at Misu. Yes, thank you so much. You're, Thanks, Anastasia. You're very welcome. Yes. Let you get back to have rehearse. Have a wonderful day. Yes, you too, and, and have a good rehearsal. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right, well, they, she, nice that they took some time out for us to yes. tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, that's coming up. And then also, uh, we mentioned the other uh, event that's coming up on Saturday at 7.30, uh, Music on Market Coffeehouse, the uh, uh, Debbie Land uh, the is there. Yeah, yes. with the B2s. Yeah, yeah. So that coffee house is interesting. You know, they have a range of, it's not classical, um, but they have all different kinds of, you know, folk, um, singer, songwriter, all different kinds of music there on, on a regular basis right there in Ellenville. Um, so that's a nice thing if, you know, if you're kind of looking for something to do. Um, you know, and uh, she mentioned... Um, uh, that Women's History Month is coming up. And I wanted to say that I'm working on a new show. And usually when I do my women composers show, it's kind of a sampling of lots and lots of people. And I decided I wanted to take a deeper dive. So I'm going to do two contemporary women and two not contemporary. So too old, too new um, for March. So that'll be going up next week. All right. You can look for that at the website, wjffradio.org or on Mixcloud. Yes. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks because, uh, Sullivan County Chamber Orchestra has a performance uh, coming up, the evolution of the double bass. And yeah. we'll talk to them about that. Yeah. They're going to be doing two shows of that, I believe. So that's really something to look forward to. All right. Classical kit. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Tomorrow on the show, uh, we have a report from our student journalist, Marin Scotton. She is going to be telling us about a young racer from Ellenville racing cars. That's tomorrow. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org.
This is Thane Peterson, host of Living Jazz. Saturday at noon, I bring you two hours of the very best of the current jazz scene, along with a little bit of classic jazz thrown into the mix. It's wonderful music that will warm your heart and soothe your soul. Join me for Living Jazz, noon to two Saturday, only on Radio Catskill. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, an intimate conversation with Salvadoran author Javier Zamora on what he thinks the role of a writer in today's world should be. You know, if there's anything that my parents taught me is that writers should be at the vanguard of change. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, streaming live at WJFFradio.org. This is Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. In the forecast, rain coming this afternoon and through tonight and tomorrow, we could see up to a half an inch of rain. Today's high 58, down to 48 tonight and uh, back up to 58 tomorrow. It's 11 o'clock.